Wow, that was fabulous. Oh my goodness. And I, you know, we read that psalm and we said uh, everything but the dancing. Oh, what's wrong with us Baptists, okay? Good grief. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Oh. And, and, and yes, I, I guess I should, I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this, maybe some of you already know this, but I am a grad of the University of Guelph, okay? Just in case you're wondering, I am. 1974, yeah, 1974, Earth Science, um, OAC, yeah, there you go. Okay, so, I find myself at home here in Guelph, so that's fantastic. Um, the common greeting of the season now is, at least among Christians, <laughs> is Merry Christmas, uh, Joyeux Noël, and today we celebrate the candle of joy. It's the pink one. It's Christmas Sunday, and yeah, we are a week behind on our candles, as those of you who are familiar with how that works. Uh, this is actually Christmas Sunday, and we should have... Um, had the fourth candle burning uh, today. However, uh, we started a week late, so we're going to finish the, uh, have the fourth candle next Sunday. And then the other thing that's normally done with the Advent candle is that you, uh, you light the Christmas candle or the Christ, uh, the Christ candle, the white one, on Christmas Eve. And uh, since we're not having Christmas Eve service, we have chosen to have the that uh, white candle burning uh, throughout the uh, season of Advent. Now, I have to confess, and this just happened last night and this morning, uh, before Eve, this is after I've prepared all what I want to talk to you about. I'm a little conflicted this morning. Uh, a dear friend of mine passed away last night. One of my former students, uh, too young to be gone. And we had had our family Christmas yesterday, and after everybody got, everybody left, you know, <laughs> the grandparents enjoying seeing the taillights. <laughs> we had a wonderful day. It was just a wonderful, wonderful day. We managed to slide in under the, uh, under the restrictions of today. Um, and so my wife opened her phone, and uh, we heard that, uh, our friend had passed away. He had had a heart attack a, a few, uh, about a week or so ago. And uh, anyhow, uh, so that was tough last night after a good day. And then this morning I got a call from his wife asking me to, to um, preach the sermon in the funeral, which will be next week sometime. So, uh, now that, that, that phone call just came as I was leaving to come here. And so, you know, there's been a lot of thoughts kind of running around in my mind right now. And, and, and I tell you that story, and I tell you that to just kind of help you understand uh, out of the candle, out of a, you know, a text last night and a phone call this morning, we light the candle of joy, and I speak to you out of that context. Um... But I think that's important because that is actually going to be a theme throughout some of the things we're going to talk about this morning. And I also want to say that, and, and as I heard Pastor Sam's um, prayer, uh, all of us have our stories. And I, I don't want to dominate the, your, uh, the, the place with my own story. You have yours as well. And we all bring 
um, our stories into the context of what it is to think about joy. And some of those stories, I don't know you all that well. Getting to know some of you, it's great. Enjoying that. But um, some of you have brought some deep pain into the, into the worship service this morning. And uh, I want you to know that. And I want you to know that I know that. And uh, acknowledge all of that. In 1899, on the brink of the 20th century, not the 21st, but the 20th, this statement was made from a prominent pulpit in England. I cannot stifle the aspiration that the new century about to dawn will be the brightest jewel in the crown of modern history. (laughs) Look back on the 20th century with that one and say, yeah, okay, for sure. In the 20th century, many great things happened, for sure. Okay, medicine, science, technology, We also know that the 20th century is one of the most horrific of all time. And it's interesting that in contrast, very few made that statement at the beginning of the 21st century. We all know the pain of our times. We're in a worldwide pandemic that, I don't know about you, but I am really, really tired of this. And it just never seems to end, and it now it's just skyrocketed again. My home church actually has didn't have a service today because of the uh, what you know the dangers that are out there. We're in a climate crisis that's real, and I am not a climate crisis denier. I'm I recognize, and I think that is a major issue for our time in society to deal with. Maybe it comes from my time at the University of Guelph where I was very much involved in environmental sciences. That's kind of where my world was. Massive displacement and migrations of peoples. We see it everywhere, right? International tensions. The Taliban. And others like it. And there's an article in the most recent um, Christianity Today. Sorry, this thing is wobbling a little bit on me. Uh, An article in the most um, recent Christianity Today on the uh, ongoing and increased persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world. This this whole issue of our persecuted brothers and sisters is not over by any means. And in fact, it's intensifying around the world. And there's a lot more that we could talk about. And it's into that world that we say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And we light a candle of joy. And perhaps a little bit nostalgically, we remember that the, that the angel announced to the shepherds, I, I, today I bring you good tidings of great joy. So how does that work? How do we, how do we talk about that in our, in our times where there's not a lot of a joy? And certainly when the, when the angels announced that to the shepherds, they were not in an idyllic world. They knew well the boot of Rome and a madman by the name of Herod. And I'm sure nothing really changed for them when they went back to their fields. How did they receive that message of good tidings of great joy? And then we have Mary. Mary. A young girl, 
engaged to a young man by the name of Joseph, and she's been told by an angel that she will become pregnant. Pregnant in a town known for, <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, known for its young women who had sex for sale with, for Roman soldiers. And further, pregnant with the Messiah. Huh. Oh, really? And furthermore, the Father is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, really? And you see Joseph struggling with it. And by the way, his amazing godly character that emerges out of all that. And both of them living in a community that would, would never believe her or him. But Mary is an amazing young woman. And then she says to the angel after she has received that vision, that dream of the angel speaking to her, and he, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. And then Mary disappears. She disappears into the hills of Judea to the home of her cousin Elizabeth, who, who does believe her, by the way, because a similar miracle has happened in her life. And out of that devastating but amazing announcement, she sings. And she sings to express her resilient faith when the world, when her world has come crashing down. And Luke records the song first to let us hear Mary sing it, but second, and more importantly, for the church to sing it. Luke writes this song for the church long after Jesus has ascended to his father, and he writes the gospel of Luke, and he writes Mary's song to the church so that the church could hear Mary sing it, but that it would become part of their worship, their music, their expression of joy. And glory to God in the highest. And so the church has been reading and singing this song throughout the century. And it, the church throughout the centuries. And Luke has written it to the church so that the church could sing it throughout the centuries. In the midst of pandemics. In the midst of wars. In the midst of persecutions. In the midst of mockery. In the midst of martyrdoms. And the church continues to read and sing this. And in the chaos of personal and global struggle, to give us and the world a voice of joy. A voice of joy because of the good news of what today is, Christmas Sunday. The voice of the gospel. And the gospel of a Messiah that brings the church and the world hope and salvation. And so while Mary's song is her song, it is now our, uh, now our song. The song of the church and the song of each of us who are followers of the Messiah. And in this song, we will find the voice of joy and rejoicing because of a God of grace, justice, and mercy that has invaded a messy and broken world with his messianic son. Let's read the song. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to read the song to you. I trust that 
You've read the Christmas story. I know you have many, many times. And I trust that you didn't skip over uh, this part of it because I think it's really important. And Luke has put it there for us to read and see and hear and speak to one another. So Luke chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior, in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms, and he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the reading of the Holy Scriptures. So in this song, as I said before, we find the voice of joy and rejoicing because of a God of grace, justice, and mercy that has invaded a broken world with his messianic son. So let's look at the song. What do we find here? And the first thing we do find is that Mary is singing with deep joy and deep rejoicing. Verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in, God's my, in God my Savior. And so here we hear, we, we see Mary uh, point us to unrestrained joy for what God has done in her life. From the depths of her being, she sings, my soul my heart, my spirit. She's speaking of her entire person. Yes, her world has come crashing down for sure. What she is dealing with is unimaginable in that time and culture of how she's going to even show her face on the street. But she knows that the event that her people have been waiting for for centuries has come, come upon her and she cannot remain silent. And so when we understand, when we today understand what God has done to the life of Mary for herself, her people, for us as his church, and for the world, we sing our souls, our souls, glorify the Lord and our spirits rejoice in God our Savior. We are a people of joy and rejoicing even in times when our worlds have crashed, come crashing down and we're caught in grief and sorrow and suffering and pain. We light the candle of joy. And let's always remember as the darkness grows darker, the candle of joy shines brighter. So the first thing we see is Mary's an hour, because now it become our song, unrestrained joy in what God has done in bringing a long-awaited Messiah into the world. And now she goes into reasons. You'll see in your biblical text a couple times you see the word for, F-O-R. 
And she's giving reasons at this point for, for that unrestrained rejoicing. And her reasons go and they wrap around the God that has caused all of this. Uh, she, she, her song now explodes with descriptions of God that can only bring worship, joy, and hope. We find in her song some of the most amazing descriptions of our God found anywhere in Scripture. Mary, Mary a young woman, a, a, coming from a, a poor context in, in Galilee, is an excellent theologian. <laughs> and Luke records her song in order to teach the church good theology about the God who is active in the world and bringing redemption through Jesus Christ. And so there are a number of things that she says about God in the rest of her song, and we could spend quite a bit of time parsing out a number of them. I'm going to just talk about four things that she talks about. There are others that we could certainly uh, reflect on. But first of all, the first thing I see as she, as she celebrates, as she sings, and gives the reasons for it, the first one is this, that God, a God of power, and he is, strong arm, is a God who knows about and loves to use the humble and the powerless to bring about his kingdom. She writes, my soul glorifies the Lord, my my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done, done great things for me. Holy is his name. A little later on, she writes, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. God, a God of power, is a God who knows about and loves to use the humble and powerless to bring about his kingdom. This event did not come to a queen or aristocrat. Rather, a humble and poor Galilean girl, and God loves to work this way. I love the story of the uh, anointing of David as king. And if you remember that story, the people had their choice. A king by the name of Saul, tall, could lead the people into battle. They, they could hold their own with the pagan nations that are around them. But he went off the rails, as we know. And now it was time for God's choice. And uh, rather than what the people wanted, a king like the other nations, God had his choice in mind. And so he sends Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint one of the sons of, of Jesse. And, and Jesse has seven sons. And they all come before him, one, after, one before Samuel, one after the other as, as candidates for, for the next king. Starts with the elders and, eldest, and he goes all the way down through, through the seven sons. And by the way, seven is a number of completeness. In other words, seven sons, total, complete, family done. Seven. And he gets to the seventh one, and, and he says, he shakes his head, and he kind of looks at Jesse, and he says, um, mm, uh, you got another son? And, and Jesse says, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> He's out in the back pasture. He's a katone. That's the Hebrew word, katone. Well, I don't know whether you know what the word katone means, but it means runt. It means little one. It means oops. He's the eighth of seven sons. 
And Samuel says to Jesse, go get him. So off they send uh, somebody to go get him, and David comes in. And he stands before Samuel, and he goes to his knees, and out comes the horn of anointing oil, pours it over his head, and said, behold the king of Israel. When Jesse asked Samuel afterwards, what are you doing? What's going on here? Samuel said this, the Lord does not look on the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you know what? The God of power, the God of the mighty arm, loves to use people like you and me. Loves to use common, ordinary people like you and me. The catones of this world. Common, ordinary churches like yours. And families like yours and mine. And that God of power, that God of power empowers us by his spirit, even as he did Mary to bring about the momentous wonders of the gospel and the workings of God's kingdom. And I don't know about you, I could stop preaching at this point and just say, let's go home. That is awesome. To know that reality. And Mary sings about it. Loves to use the humble and the marginalized in the accomplishment of his kingdom. So, Mary sings from the depths of her being and the midst of her personal chaos, celebrating the God's invasion in her life, bringing, it, bringing the long-awaited Messiah into the world. And she does, she sings because she knows of, about her God and our God. And the first thing I see in Mary's song, and now ours, is that he knows about and loves to work with the humble and powerless to accomplish his will and ways, the catones of this world and people in churches like us. But now the second. What is the second thing that she talks about? It's found in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from, from generation to generation. And the second thing that Mary sings about and we learn from her song is that God is a God of ongoing mercy to his worshipers. There's a special ongoing mercy for those who fear and worship God. Celsus in AD 120, one of the first writers to attack Christianity stated that God did not care for believers in Jesus any more than he cared for lions or eagles. Well, the reality is God does care for lion and eagles, lions and eagles. Psalm 104 tells us that. But Mary knew differently than Celsus. She knew of the mercy of God that had been known for centuries for her own people, generation after generation, preserving and promising. And now she knew that in her own life, generation after generation, in her own life, she was the agent of mercy in bringing the promised Messiah into the world after generations of waiting and hoping. But that, that, that mercy from generation to generation has not stopped, has not stopped with Mary, did not stop with the first coming of Christ. It extends from generation to generation into our own day and time. And 21 centuries later, the mercy of God is known to us through Jesus Christ, known to us as his people, 
known to us in the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation by faith found in Jesus Christ, that the mercy of God is known to us through his indwelling spirit. It is known to us through, through the possession of the sacred scriptures. That is a mercy that he has extended to us generation after generation. Mercy has been extended to us in forming a called out people called the church that provides community and people of worship of the true God. And so Mary has articulated, among many others, two things about the God that she knew so well. God of power and might is all about the humble and that he's a God of mercy from generation to generation right down to our own time. A third thing that she talks about. God is a God of justice who cares for the poor. Look at verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. The poor are mentioned hundreds of times in the scriptures. The Old Testament prophets were all about the poor, the orphan, and the widows. One of the first things that the early church did was to set up a system to care for the widows, the women in their, in, in, in their midst who had no resources. They were the poor among them, at least some of the poor. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle James said, religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows and their distress. Those are the poor. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And by the way, getting polluted by the world, is to push towards power, wealth, position, fame, and fortune. Size. Remember Jesus' words? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to get into the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that statement by Jesus. It's one of the very few things that all synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, record. It was so shocking. All of them record it. And by the way, that eye of a needle, (laughs) we've seen this this, uh, apocryphal kind of explanation that it was a little door, the big door that a camel got down on its knees to crawl through, and that was called the eye of the needle. No. Jesus meant the eye of a needle. That's why the word impossible came out in that story. That's why they were so shocked. Impossible, they said. Exactly, Jesus said. (laughs) Mary came from the world of the poor. She knew her humble place in society. And while the scriptures do not teach that it is wrong to be rich, they do teach that if we think that those riches are going to give us a leg up on anyone else getting into the kingdom, that somehow that gives us a favored place, that somehow that might be a way that we can earn our way in, we're dead wrong. And further, if we as a church do not take seriously, hear me now, folks, if we as a church do not take seriously the ministry to the poor among us and in the world, Our religion, our faith is not accepted by God. You just got to read James to get that one. 
And a crucial part of why Mary could sing of joy and rejoicing in the midst of her chaos and shattered world is that God is a God of justice who cares for the poor. And the implication is that if he is, so must we be. So three reasons for joy in the midst of the chaos that Mary sings about. God is all about the humble, the katones of this world. He is all about mercy found in Christ from generation to generation. He is all about justice and care for the poor, the marginalized, the voices, the need for others in the church to speak on behalf of and to act on their behalf of. And then finally, in verses 54 and 55, we find that Mary sings of a God who remembers his people. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. Again, Mary's life is in chaos. Mary's people are in chaos under the boot of Rome and a madman king. Has God forgotten them? The prophets have been silent for 400 years. But she knows that they are not forgotten by their God. Earlier she said that God had been mindful of hers. Now she says that God was mindful of his people, the descendants of Abraham. And in this moment, momentous event, her pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the promised Messiah, he had remembered to be merciful, merciful in bringing, uh, bringing about long-awaited prophecies to pass. And in that remembering in that past was now breaking into the present and into the future. But the beauty of all of this is we're part of that remembering today. Paul made it clear that we as a church are the descendants of Abraham. Now, I, you, you, we, can, we can talk about our eschatological positions of whether we're all mill, pre-mill, whatever we are. I'm pan-mill. It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> well, actually, I'm not. But anyhow, just... <laughs> But, but we're the descendants of Abraham in any kind of system that we might have put in our, you know, figured out in, from our Bibles. Remember this classic text from Galatians? So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And so from Mary's songs and now ours song and now ours, we know that as Abraham's offering, offspring, us, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are not forgotten by God. In, in the chaoses of our lives. And that dear family, that dear family, now a, that widow who called me this morning, I can say to her, you are not forgotten by God. You are a descendant of Abraham. You are part of God's people. That promise came to the, our ancestors and now moves to our day today. And you know what? And remembering to be merciful is for Abraham's descendants forever. It means right up to the end of history, the momentous event of Christ's second coming. And what a wonderful song that we sang, uh, 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 the Getty song that we just sang about, about pushing us towards the second coming. Man, I was just about coming out of my skin over here. As we were singing that song, yes! 
right to the end of history in the momentous event of Christ's second coming. And I don't know about you, but that makes a difference. A theologian by the name of Rudolf Bultmann once said that the second coming was a myth and did not really matter. Another theologian by the name of John Golden Gay, whose wife had become seriously ill and now lives with a permanent disability, writes, I used to say that I wouldn't mind if Rudolf Bultmann were correct and the second coming were a myth, but now I do mind. It matters that Jesus is going to finish the job he has begun, a job of putting down evil and restoring rightness. Both are begun with Mary. Neither is finished. And then he says that he can trust God with Anne, his wife, and can have joy now because there is a day of joy coming that God will finish what he has started. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. And that's you and me. And we can rejoice. We can rejoice with Mary. God has remembered us, his, our, his descendants, the descendants of Abraham, through faith in Christ, and we can light the candle of joy in our times of pandemic, climate crisis, massive migrations, brutal persecutions of our brothers and sisters, and more, including our own personal realities that we live with day by day. The text we have explored today is called Mary's Magnificat. But it's more than Mary's Magnificat, it is ours. Luke, the gospel writer, makes sure that the church hears it and allows it to become one of the worship songs of the first century church, and it needs to be ours in the 21st century church as we even look forward to the 22nd century church. Jesus came into a world of brokenness, sorrow, and suffering, and Mary sang her song of joy in that world from the depths of her soul and spirit, and we do too. And we sing of a God that cares about the poor, the humble, the powerless, and loves to use the ordinary and the humble, people like Mary and us, to bring his kingdom to pass. We sing of a God who is merciful to his worshipers and remembers his people forever, including us, including us, giving us hope that there is a day coming when there will be a second coming. And all that was begun in the first coming will be finished in the second. So please stand with me if you are able. And let's hear her song one more time as we celebrate joy on this Christmas Sunday. We're going to hear this song read. And then please remain standing for our song of departure after we have heard the song read one more time. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. 